Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics. I'm Major Alan Abrams. I'm Defense Counsel in the Air Force's Trial Defense Division. I'm filling in for our normal host, Gerald Johnson, but he'll be back soon. Before we get into this week's episode, I'll note, like we always do, that this podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial. The ideas are those of the presenters. This week, it'll be me. And my views don't represent the official views of the United States government, the Department of Defense, the Department of the Air Force, or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. For this week's episode, we're going to be discussing the recent decision by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces in United States versus King. Then for our advocacy segment, we're going to cover what to do when witnesses basically start giving you completely nonsense answers. For the King case, you pretty much get the gist of the entire opinion in the first sentence after the court gets through its procedural recap. And here's the quote from the court. This case underscores the need for everyone involved in a court-martial to pay meticulous attention to the panel member selection process. If that sounds a little bit like Chief Judge Olson and the rest of the court going kaboom, that is certainly how it reads. A lot of the King case relates to appellate jurisprudence with issues having to do with waiver versus forfeiture and adding documents to the record on appeal. But the whole case goes back to the excusal of a panel member that was not done properly and, as the court sort of chastises, should have been caught by the defense counsel, the trial counsel, and the military judge. We'll focus our discussion on the trial portion of the case. So let's recap what happened, though, in a timeline, because that's the easiest way, really, to wrap your head around this one. So in April 2018, the court-martial assembles. Assembly is important because after that, there has to be good cause to excuse any of the court members. In other words, you can't excuse any of them without good cause. Fifteen members are present at this April 2018 hearing, including Lieutenant Colonel PBL, who's a primary panel. Lieutenant Colonel PBL is the would-be panel president. At this April 2018 assembly, an alternate member, Colonel DL, is not present, and there's nothing in the record explaining why. That's mistake number one when it comes to the panel members in this case. Still, in this April 2018 hearing, Lieutenant Colonel PBL said some really good stuff, at least as the defense saw it, about previously being cleared of an alleged uh, false accusation of sex assault while he was a teenager. The trial defense team, they were a fan. In fact, Lieutenant Colonel PBL was still on the panel after challenges, but then the defense needed a continuance. Consistent with Article 29 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice and Rule for Courts Marshal 505, the military judge told the members that they remained panel members and they could not be excused unless there was, quote, good cause. At that time, again, still in April 2018, Lieutenant Colonel PBL was slated for a new assignment, but it was just to change units while remaining on the same base. Here's our next dateline. 7 June 2018. On that date, Lieutenant Colonel PBL found out he was going to Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama for Air War College, rather than changing units at his current base where trial was going to be held. So he's gearing up for this year-long assignment, basically, to go to school. A week later, on the 14th of June, 2018, Lieutenant Colonel PBL 
requested excusal from the court-martial. The convening authority granted that request. This, though, wasn't disclosed to the defense when it happened. Mistake number two. Fast forward to 24 July 2018. Trial is back on, but with a new military judge, new senior trial counsel, and seven newly detailed panel members. Here's where we get a few more mistakes. Mistake number three had to do with Lieutenant Colonel PBL. An amended convening order was added to the record showing that Lieutenant Colonel PBL and another Lieutenant Colonel had been, quote, relieved. But there was zero cause provided or shown in the documents, let alone the good cause required by Article 29. Mistake number four came right after trial counsel put this amended convening order on the record. When the military judge asked whether the members that are absent were relieved by the convening authority, the senior trial counsel said, here's the quote, the members that are absent were at a previous hearing. That statement was wrong as it related to Colonel D.L., who had never showed up. Then the senior trial counsel said that the other members, quote, were excused at an earlier session, end quote. The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces points out that, no, you literally just put in an amended convening order showing they were excused by the convening authority in between the initial assembly of the court and resuming after the continuance. They weren't excused in an earlier session. That statement was wrong, senior trial counsel. Compounding this misstatement is that the military judge did not correct it, nor did the defense counsel. The defense did not challenge the composition of the court-martial panel at any time during the trial, taking it up for the first time on appeal. In fact, it's on that appeal that the documents about the excusal of Lieutenant Colonel PBL way back in June 2018, and it's the nexus of that excusal to Air War College, that's when those documents finally came up. So the defense's decision to not take this issue up until appeal led to a debate during the appeal itself about whether the issue was waived. Ultimately, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces found that the issue had not been waived, but forfeited. It then considered the issue of whether the court-martial was properly constituted, and ultimately decided that adversely to the appellant. The court's opinion turns on the excusal issue. Lieutenant Colonel PBL's excusal, along with the excusal of the other lieutenant colonel, was important because it put the panel below quorum, you know, that minimum number of court members that you have to have, and that gave the convening authority the green light to detail new members. If the trial court was made up of members that shouldn't be there, for example, because they are barred from being there by operation of law or because they were never detailed by the convening authority, the court-martial itself is invalid and the findings, they're gone. So if the excusal, though, was done improperly, that's a big issue for the validity of the trial. But if the excusal was done for the right reason, only to be documented improperly, then under the law it is considered an administrative error. Then what happens is that the conviction can survive, unless there's a showing by the appellant of prejudice. This latter court category is where this particular case, United States versus King, falls. The government conceded that the excusal was done improperly as it related to Lieutenant Colonel PBL because good cause was not shown on the record. But ultimately, underlying all of that, there was good cause because of Lieutenant Colonel PBL's permanent assignment to Air War College, which started prior to the trial. The Court of Appeals says this wasn't some temporary inconvenience or pretext to get Lieutenant Colonel PBL off the panel, but rather a military exigency. It just wasn't captured properly in the record at the time. 
Because the government concedes this documentation error, the court turns to prejudice, and the appellant's showing of prejudice ultimately is deemed lacking. That's why he loses the appeal. There are two main takeaways for trial practitioners in this case. The first is relatively straightforward. When you're looking at excusals of court members after assembly in residence military education courses that at least precede the uh, start of trial were likely to be treated as good cause, similar to how Air War College was here. The second is how trial practitioners on all sides handle changes in court members leading up to trial sessions. You're going to get a lot of documents and amended convening orders, often as you get closer to actually being in court. Make sure to affirmatively and explicitly request the underlying memos that were provided to the convening authority and the convening authority's actual selection memos with the digital or actually hand-done signatures and initialing. Bounce those up against the convening orders that you're getting, as well as who you see in the courtroom to see if the right people are present and absent. If they're not, you should be on the lookout for a jurisdictional error and will want to catch that for the court. Now, it may be tempting, though, to ask, why should I help the government prosecute my client? And that's a, that's a fair question here, because as we noted earlier, if the jurisdictional aspect of the court is wrong, as in is completely constituted erroneously, well, this, this thing's no good. There are three quick responses to that. First, there's a potential issue of candor to the court. If you've done your due diligence and think there's a jurisdictional issue with the court, which is different than, say, an issue of ambiguous findings where defense counsel should almost remain silent. The judge never asks you if the findings are right. They do ask you if the convening documents and the documents in the members' folders are right. Second, failing to raise the issue will forfeit it, and as the court notes in King, sandbagging by the defense to ignore these sorts of issues is not going to be looked upon favorably as a strategy. Third, all parties to the court martial should be checking these issues anyways, as failure to get them right can be problematic for ensuring long-term, timely due process for clients. Let's switch gears and turn to our advocacy segment for this week, and for that we're going to be talking about what you can do to impeach a witness on cross-examination when they give you an answer that is just complete and utter nonsense. Now, for this, we're not talking about necessarily a combative witness, although I guess this is one sort of species of a combative witness. Uh, we can talk about that maybe in another episode. This one is just where we're talking about their answer just defies reason. Let me give you an example. You've got a witness on the stand. The witness is talking about the scene of the alleged crime, which just so happens to be the home where this same witness lives and has lived for many, many years. This witness's home has a garage door. The witness primarily goes into the house through the garage door. The garage door has a passcode. The witness normally uses that passcode to go into the garage. When you ask the witness about the passcode, which happens to be a critical fact for your case, the witness replies, well, I don't recall. You can think of similar analogous situations, I'm sure. Control over and access to a cell phone is the biggest one that comes to mind. But whatever happens, whatever the question that prompts this, you're up there asking your question thinking, are you kidding me right now? You seriously don't know the answer to this? Frustrating as that answer from the witness is, there are some no kidding pathways to impeachment based on these ridiculous sorts of nonsense statements by the witness, and that's our focus here today. Specifically, there are really three main tools in front of you. Let's recap them and then discuss them in greater detail. First, if possible, you can impeach the witness with a prior inconsistent statement. Second, you can lean into the answer to impeach the capacity or competency of the witness. Third, you can impeach the witness with 
some kind of extrinsic contradiction, either through the witness themselves, by some act that they've done, or through a different witness. All right, so impeachment by a prior inconsistent statement. Going back to our example of not remembering the garage door code, let's assume that the witness told the local police the code for the garage. Looking at our issue through the rules of evidence, this is just a standard prior inconsistent statement. You've asked a question, the witness testified to something, in this case, I don't recall, that was different from knowing the passcode earlier. That change could be because the witness is lying. It could be because the witness doesn't remember. So here's how that line of questioning might play out. Mr. Witness, the passcode to the garage was one, two, three, four. I don't recall. You're telling us you don't remember your own garage's passcode? Yes, sir. On the night of the alleged incident, you spoke with the police officers that came to your house. You told them about what happened. This was right after it allegedly happened. Those events were fresh in your mind. You told them about the garage. You told them about the passcode for the garage. You told them that night about the passcode for the garage. The garage for the house where you still live. You told them that night that the passcode was one, two, three, four. That is a pretty straightforward prior and consistent statement. Impeachment with confirming, crediting, and confronting the witness. As we've talked about in earlier episodes, you can draw it out or shorten it depending on really the depth that you're pursuing with your questions. And you may need to prove up the prior and consistent statement if the witness doesn't own it when you get to that end point of confrontation. To impeach in this manner, of course, it's important to make sure you've sourced all of the questions you intend to ask, at least to the extent that you can, so that you're ready to impeach on even the most unexpected or potentially most basic topics with the citations you need to pull over the prior statement at a moment's notice. In terms of the evidentiary significance of this evidence, this impeachment largely boils down to two potential means to attack the credibility of the witness. Again, it's a prior and consistent statement. It only goes to credibility. Either they have a really bad memory, which goes to their capacity or competency as a witness, or they have a tough time sticking to the truth, which goes to their trustworthiness and overall credibility and believability. From the perspective of the party doing the impeachment, it doesn't necessarily matter which, though it might, depending on the theory of the case that you have and how this sort of inconsistency lines up with any pertinent motives or biases. It's nice to be able to line up a motive to fabricate with an argument that someone is actually fabricating. Now, what about our second line of impeachment, where we lean in to make this more about a capacity issue? Under this line of impeachment, you are basically going to mine of, wow, this witness said a really ridiculous thing. If everything they say is ridiculous, or if everything that they assert it cannot be believed by virtue of them being unable to remember it or just respond like a rational, believable person, you really can't believe anything that they say. Under our example, with a ridiculous sort of, I don't recall, we'd be exploring the limits of that. That's one way to go about it. So here's an example. Mr. Witness, the passcode to the garage was one, two, three, four. I don't recall. You're telling us you don't remember your own garage's passcode? Yes, sir. Is there anything else you don't recall from that day? No, sir. So the only thing you don't recall from that day is the passcode to open the garage to the house where you've lived for the last few years. Under this particular example, we've tested the capacity of the witness to accurately perceive and recall events. The answer seems to be that the witness has only forgotten this very important fact, which seems like, well, at least as they're asserting it, they shouldn't be misremembering or failing to remember a certain number of things. Their answer is more to the effect of what appears to be selective memory. 
if they'd answered it differently to say that they don't remember a whole lot of things, well, then now you're in the landscape of their inability to accurately perceive and recall events, which could go be very important as to whether their recollections of certain events should be believed. Now, as an alternative, we could tweak our fact pattern and imagine that instead of a garage, we're talking about a cell phone. If we lean into the nonsense answer provided by the witness, you can keep running down that line and heighten why it seems to show a lack of capacity on the part of the witness. So, something like this. Mr. Witness, the passcode to your cell phone was 1234. I don't recall. You're telling us you don't remember your own phone's passcode. Yes, sir. All right, well, let's take a step back. You did have a cell phone, correct? When did you get it? Was your cell phone, your cell phone was what some folks would call a smartphone. You used it multiple times each day. You used it to talk to make phone calls, to send messages, to receive messages, to view videos, to do emails, to pay bills, to listen to music. To do those things, you had to open or unlock the phone. You needed the passcode to open your particular phone. So you put in the passcode multiple times each day to do all those things we just talked about approximately how many times a day? And you're telling us you don't remember your cell phone's passcode. Here's another example where the witness can't seem to remember any of the events of a critical morning in our case, even though the witness remembers everything else before and after with exacting detail. Mr. Witness, let's talk about what you did that morning. I don't recall what I did that morning. Okay, well, let's talk about the things you do and don't recall then and see if we can narrow that down a little. You woke up, I assume so. You got out of bed? I assume so. You dragged a comb across your head? I don't recall. You went downstairs? I don't recall. You made a cup of coffee? I don't recall. You noticed you were late? I don't recall. You found your coat? I don't recall. You grabbed your hat? I don't recall. You made the bus in seconds flat? I don't recall. You don't recall anything from that morning? No, I don't. And it's just that morning? Yes. Now, were those a little bit of a far-fetched example as a means of sticking to the lyrics of a Beatles song? Yes. But the point is, is that it's really weird that the witness does not remember any of these facts. And it says something about the ability of that witness to accurately perceive and recall events. We're relying on the things that they have said that they observed and that they know and can remember as the basis of whether we should believe their testimony. While this example was a little ridiculous, counsel will often see this at trial. Oftentimes where a witness seems to recall every little detail when the side that called them asks the question and not having anything to say, but I don't recall when it's time for cross-examination. Again, we're not talking about this in terms of all the tools available to deal with combative witnesses, and maybe you're viewing the, wit the witness that I just described as being combative, but at least this is one tool in your toolkit for an answer that is just completely ridiculous. Turning to our third line of impeachment, you can impeach the witness by contradiction. That is, the witness is testifying to one thing, but did something else. For example, Mr. Witness, the passcode to the garage was 1234. I don't recall. You're telling us you don't remember your own garage's passcode? Yes, sir. You met with the police on the night when this all allegedly happened? That very night, you opened the garage door for them. The same garage door you have now. The same garage door you have now in the home where you live. That garage door only opens with a passcode. 
And that night we've been talking about, you opened your garage door with that passcode. The passcode you're now telling us you don't remember. With this example, I realized that under case law, you could argue that putting in the passcode could be viewed as a statement. The point is that we're drawing out the distinction between what the witness is saying now versus what they did then. We could do the same thing by impeaching the witness with, say, a video uh, of them actually opening the garage, perhaps from a police body cam footage or something like that. As a final note on this topic, and you may have picked up on this already as you've been thinking actively while we've been discussing it, you can absolutely combine some of the techniques that we just talked about. As always, it's case dependent. But if you think about our example with the garage, you could combine the second option that we discussed about leaning into the nonsense answer and, if possible and available, tack on a more firmly grounded impeachment afterwards. Doing so may help you show both the ridiculousness of what the witness is saying as their answer to a pretty straightforward question, but it also may score the more traditional credibility point of just straight-up impeachment, for example, with a prior inconsistent statement. For the sake of brevity, we'll stick with our shortest example of the leaning-in line of impeachment to illustrate how that sort of combination might look. Mr. Witness, the passcode to the garage was 1234. I don't recall. You're telling us you don't remember your own garage's passcode? Yes, sir. Is there anything else you don't recall from that day? No, sir. So the only thing you don't recall from that day is the passcode to open the garage to the house where you've lived for the last few years. On the night of the alleged incident, you spoke with the police officers that came to your house. You told them about what happened. This was right after it allegedly happened. We're talking minutes after this allegedly happened. Those events then of what happened were fresh in your mind. You told them about the garage. You told them about the passcode to the garage. You told them that that night that there was this passcode to the garage. You told the actual passcode to the police officers that night. And it was the passcode for the garage for the house that you're in now, the house where you still live, same as that night. You told them that night that the passcode was one, two, three, four. In doing that, Right, You've got the witness in a spot where they've given just a ridiculous, seemingly not particularly forthright answer. And so you're showing that they are, on the one hand, just being not believable in one sense uh, by virtue of being seemingly willing to stress the truth. And then you've got them where it's actually provable straight up that they did know this and that they're really not being forthright. So you've made basically a logical argument about the witness by virtue of your question, and that's something that you could take to the fact finder in findings argument, as well as a no kidding, I've scored a clear credibility point with this clean impeachment that I've got. Now, being able to do this demands some familiarity with both your case and the overarching tools of impeachment at your disposal. That's why you doing this discussion. It's not necessarily easy to do because you're really thinking about this sort of thing on, on your feet as you get these sorts of ridiculous answers from the witness. With practice, though, you'll be able to work on the fly to maximize your impeachment when you encounter these sorts of weird, nonsensical answers from witnesses, and we hope that today's discussion has been helpful in getting you ready to do that. Thank you for listening, and I hope this was helpful. Check in with us again in two weeks when we continue with another round of legal updates and another update uh, on trial advocacy skills. Until then, any ideas, any comments, any suggestions that you have, they are always welcome. 
You can email me at alan.abrams.1 at us.af.mil. That's A-L-L-E-N dot A-B-R-A-M-S dot one at us.af.mil. Or you can email Daryl Johnson, who's a regular host, at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all you do. And I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases.